might remember hung on him being on the outside, who he really was on the inside. You see, here it is. All of Middle Earth, there it is, was waiting for the true king to come to put things to right at last. And if you're familiar with Tolkien's tale and the Lord of the Rings, you remember the ranger Strider. He had lived a life in the shadows, fearing what? Being like his father, who he deemed, and the world at large, a failure. And then, in a major turning point in the movie, the third installment, when the armies needed a leader, when the land needed a righteous ruler, the man, I just am geeking out on this, aren't I? The elf lord Elrond. If you've never seen this movie, you're like, what is this guy talking about? Who knew Strider's life story, looked at him, dead in the eyes, thrust an enchanted, powerful sword in his hands. And he looked right at him, the music swelled, and he said these words, Put aside the ranger. Become who you were born to be. And with these words, Aragorn was charged to live out for the good of the world, who he really was on the inside. His identity was the true king. And he must embrace who he really is for the renewal of the world. He must live on the outside, who he really was on the inside. Y'all, I don't know if you've ever felt confusion about who you really are. That's a huge question in our day and age. And how you're supposed to live your life out of that. I know that I have. I know that I have struggled to be the husband, the father, the friend, the pastor I ought to be for the good of those around me. What about you? What about you and your different spheres, the different roles that you undertake in your life? Have you found this to be a struggle as well? You see, I could be wrong, but all of us live with a gap. It's this gap between who we really are and how that looks in the details of our lives. Congruence, right, can be an impossibly hard thing. Living a life consistent with who we are is no easy thing. All of us find ourselves in some story, and that story always dictates and drives and tells us how we ought to live our lives. I've said it before, that who we are drives how we live. And this is true not only for Aragorn, not only for me, but for every last single one of us, Christian or not, religious or not, no matter what your age, no matter what your race, no matter how you identify sexually, None of that. Every single one of us wrestles with this question. It does not matter who you are. And Paul knows this too. He knows that who we are drives how we live. And Paul has just spoken about this radical, free, liberating grace in chapter 5 where he has said this, that no matter how far your sin goes, God's grace goes deeper. That is exactly what he has said. And it leaves us with a question, right? If grace is so incredibly free, why not sin and get more grace? That's the question he's going to deal with. In fact, up to this point, Paul's letter, uh, in in Paul's letter, you yourself may have been wrestling with this very question. The writer, W.H. Auden, once wrote this in one of his stories. He he puts these words in uh, the King Herod's mouth. He says, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is is admirably arranged. You might find yourself in that way as well, right? You see, the fact is, if not many, if not all of us, are tempted to make grace a license for more sin. 
And while we never may say it, many of us tell ourselves this in our darkest moments, right? Well, God will just what? Forgive me later, right? Because that's what grace does. But is this so? Is grace meant to empower more sin in our lives? Paul is going to answer that question tonight as he assumes such a thought in his hearers. And moreover, I just want to say this on the experiential level. If you've ever been caught in a sin, if you've ever been trapped in gossip, if you feel like the computer screen has just got you, if greed has gripped your heart, if an obsession with control or power has ever enslaved you, if you look at your life and say, I'm so self-righteous, or if you look at your life and you just find it despairingly empty, if you see these things in your life and feel encaged by them, powerless under their grip. Well, friends, I have got incredible news for you tonight because Paul writes Romans chapter 6 for these very thing. You see, Paul's main point tonight is very simple. He wants us to see that grace sets us free from the bondage of sin. That grace liberates us tonight from the bondage of real sin. Radical grace really liberates. And Paul shows us this tonight with an explanation and encouragement and an exhortation. Those are my three main points tonight. Can I just ask you, there you got clicker, here it is, thank you so much, appreciate it. Let's take a look, first of all, at this idea of an explanation. This idea of an explanation. What, is, what do I mean when I say this? Well, first of all, Paul has said this up in chapter 5. Right as he enters into chapter 6, it goes something like this. Paul has just said, God's grace superabounds in the face of sin. And and Paul's listeners would have said something like this, Well, if God's glory is made great in Him forgiving sin, should we not then just go on sinning to the max, to the limit, and let God's grace come to us by abounding in forgiveness? That's what Paul is addressing. And... The, the street level of this is this, is basically this. Well, if we can do anything and not get, and God will do anything, if we cannot do anything to not get God to accept us, if it's by His grace, then why stop from doing whatever we want? Have you ever considered that? That's the objection that Paul wants to answer. And he answers it with this explanation. He basically says this, y'all. He says, You have died to sin. Look with this in verse 2. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? He is saying sin was once your master. It once ruled over you. It once owned you. But now, because of Christ's death, it no longer does. And frankly, Paul is so shocked by the rationale of that question that all he can say in the strongest terms in the Greek, he says, Meganoito. That's what he says. In the old King James Version, it said, God forbid it. In the English ESV, it's by no means. That's crazy talk, is what he's saying. You would never think this if you knew what the grace of the gospel was all about. In fact, if you raise that objection, Paul is tacitly, he is implicitly saying, you don't have any idea about what the gospel is about. If that's your rationale, you have missed completely what the gospel is all about. Paul says this in three, for three particular reasons. One, I've already mentioned it. You've died to sin. You are dead to it. That means it has no binding anymore on your life. Have you ever heard this phrase? 
She or he, you might just say it joking, you're dead to me, right? What's that mean? I've got nothing more to do with you. And Paul is saying this, that you, if you are a Christian, have died to sin. You have nothing more to do with it. It has nothing more to do with you. One pastor tells the story. He says that a driver in a car, was uh, in a truck rather, one of those big 18-wheelers, crossed across the median. And when he did, he hit a series of cars. It killed four people. And as well, that what happened was the truck driver, after hitting these cars, killing four people, tearing up people's lives, he received no penalty. He received no traffic ticket. He was given not one citation. Do you know why? Because he too was killed in the accident. Though he created this problem, he himself suffered no penalty for it. Why? Because he died. Do you see what I'm getting at? Paul is saying this, you have died to sin. It does not reign over you anymore. You ha- it has, it has, the, the axe has laid on your head It is done. It is your master no more. Therefore, you owe sin nothing. And Paul would say something like this. If that's the case, if you owe it nothing, then why in the world would you want to keep paying it? That's what he's getting at tonight. He says this. What I would like... He says this. He says that sin, because it is your... It owns you no more. You owe it nothing. One writer puts it this way. He says, A believer, therefore cannot live in continuous sin. If a man lives in sin, he is not a believer. Strong words, right? And what I would like for you to consider is the Bible talks about the effects of sin, not just in a particularly... It talks about it in a particularly unique way. Not just that we are guilty, that there is guilt for the sins that we commit, but that deep down, sin makes us less human. It therefore enslaves us. It cripples us. It, it, it mars who we were intended to be. The Christian, at his best, and I know we're not always at our best, friends, ought to see sin for what it is and hate it. And secondly, he says there's a new motivation. That this new motivation that is given in the life of the believer, at its base, is meant to now please God and to make Him happy with us. We, we do not sin not to get God to accept us, nor to get Him off, his back, off our back. We do it, rather, to please our Heavenly Father, to bring Him joy and delight. And lastly, he, he says this because I want you to see what you're actually living for. Who you're living for is actually changed. We're no longer living for ourselves but for God. And that leads one fellow campus minister, Kevin Twett, to mention this. He's at Belmont University in Nashville. He says, See, the Christian doesn't regard sin as something you can get away with. Rather, you regard it as something that has killed your precious Savior. And so the idea that you could just keep on and go on sinning, Paul says, is actually ludicrous. Now, hear me on this. And yet... And yet, it's a big one, if grace is preached as radically and as free as it is meant to be preached, the temptation will always be, if it is properly heard, to think about everything I've just told you. That it's a license for sin. 
because that's how liberal it is. The great preacher, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, used to put it this way. He used to say, look, if you're actually preaching and telling people about the gospel right, it's always going to be open to the charge of greasy grace because it's so liberating. Does that make sense? It's always going to be open to the perception of it, to the charge of it, to the idea that that's what it's about. Because that's how liberating it really is. Y'all, here's a question, a couple questions for you. Do you have a problem with the liberality of God's free grace as the sole grounds for you being right with God? Or do you want to kind of slip some work in there, slip some obedience in there somehow to get God to smile at us? Do our good works matter? Yes, they do. Obedience matters. Does our obedience merit us anything before God? Not one lick. Not one lick, says Paul. That good works always flow from God's free grace. They never are the grounds for establishing it and getting it in our lives. That's a huge concept. Because what that means, y'all, is that grace alone motivates true obedience. True obedience is motivated by God's kindness, as we heard about in Romans 2.4. Fear of Him will never, ever bring it about. His grace, Romans 2.4 as I mentioned, fear that God was out to get you, will never bring the Christian real obedience in following Him. The great Puritan John Owen said it this way, How unwilling is a child to climb into the lap of his father if he is unsure of His Father's love and delight in Him. Makes it real hard, doesn't it? That's what he's trying to get at, y'all. In short, Paul answers the objection with the explanation that you have died to sin. And if this is true, the you that now lives is radically different than the old you that has died. Who is this new you then? Who is it? Well, Paul tells us with our second point, an encouragement about our new identity an encouragement about who we are. Look with me in verses 6 through 11. Let's just highlight some of them again. He says, we know, here it is, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Sorry, give me a moment. I'm drying out here. Paul says, y'all, that when Christ died... We died also. And you're like, no, we didn't because I wasn't there and I'm still standing here right now. I didn't die. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about this old part of us that has died. Paul is saying that there is an old you. Whatever your name is, fill in the blank. There is an old Ryan. And if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, that when Christ died, the old Ryan died too. That he or she is dead, finished, no more. Why? Because you saw it right there. That we were united with Him, verse 6 tells us. And this begins to get at a very core, essential component of how you understand Christianity. It has everything to do with three words. Union with Christ. You know, Paul, that great apostle, in all of his letters, never once uses the phrase Christian. Instead, the language that he uses is in Him, or in Christ, or in Christ Jesus. The language is being connected with Christ. You see, the Bible speaks about us in two ways. It says, one, that we 
are in Christ. You ever heard 1 Corinthians 5.17? If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. But the Bible also speaks about Christ being in us. The Christ being in us as well. You know, think about it. Jesus Himself in John chapter 15, He's using this language of intimate communion, intimate connection with Himself when He says that I am the vine and you are the branches. So therefore, whatever is in the vine is in the branches as well. The Apostle Paul, he uses the image of... um, he uses the image of a body with its head, right? That the head being connected with the members of the body. This vital union together. The Apostle Peter uses the image of living stones that were being built together in a building up into our great living stone. That's the image that the, that the Bible gives us over and over again. So what I want you to begin to see tonight is that what lies at the heart of Christianity really is this idea of union with Christ. And that to be a Christian is to be in Christ and for Christ to be in me. Does that make sense? That's very, very important. Because I think sometimes we think, you know, what it means to be a Christian is to just follow some rules. Is to just give me a list of things to do. And that's what it means. No, to be a Christian is to be in vital, mystical union with Christ Jesus Himself. And what Paul is telling us is that is true of every single one of us who are Christians today, right this very moment. And that the old you is dead. And that there is a new you that has been given to you because of what Christ has done for us. And y'all, here's what I want to say. You can have a new life in Jesus. That is what lies at the heart of this message. Is that God Himself will come and dwell by His Holy Spirit within you. And He will remake your life. That is this wonderful message of what Christianity is all about. And then He does this with the likes of you and me. John Murray, that very famous theologian, once said this. He said, He said this, sorry, that union with Christ, that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. The new life that we have is as certain as Christ's resurrection life, never to die again. And what does this mean? It means that there was a former us and that that us has died. Okay, let me make a couple of points of application here to drive this home. Paul wants you to know that regardless of how you feel, regardless of how you feel and think about yourself, that the old you is really dead. Not Princess Bride, he's just mostly dead. No, not that. That that you have died. You have died. Definitive. Once for all, separated from your old self. And Christ now gives you new life. A new you. You are a new you. That's amazing news. Especially if you've ever had to do business with the old you. Because the reality of the gospel is this, dear friends. Is that you have been 
made new. And that ought to liberate some of you. Why? Because Paul is saying this, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And no matter how you feel, the old person is gone, the new has come. And therefore, in fact, when you sin, when you currently sin even today, no matter what it is, how you view yourself really matters how you will interpret that sin. You see, is that the old you? And that when God, that's just, and He's still, short, still sort of showing up in some ways? Or do we need to account for that in a different way? We're going to answer that question in just a moment. The idea is that Paul is saying that you have been united to Christ. And that when you have been united with Christ because of His death, you now have new life and that your life is solid. It is firm. It is fixed. Y'all, union with Christ is the most beautiful thing and hardest thing to talk about for any preacher. You just can't get your mind around it because it's so big and so vast. And so we're like, you know, staring at the stars trying to like describe how beautiful they are. Union with Christ is everything. And the promise is, is that if you're a Christian, you, if you're in Him, you have union with Him. I mean, that's redundant, but you get the point. Lastly, this idea of an exhortation. Paul's moving to the very end there. And the exhortation comes in these last few verses, 12 through 14. Verse 11 is critical. It is critical. Because what he says in verse 11 is as follows. He says, So you must consider yourself dead to sin. Paul is saying this. In the same way that Christ has died and has now been risen, and is that being certain, you yourself, whatever your name is, you must now consider. It's this idea of reckoning. If you're an accountant, it's the idea of finding balance and naming things as they are. It is to treat something as if it were true. And what he is saying is, he's like, he is saying you must now reckon or consider yourself dead to sin. Paul is saying that because of our new life, we have new life in us. And here it is, giving us power to fight sin. An old power has been snapped and broken over us, and a new power has been put in us. And that's what he means when he says, I want you to reckon yourself as dead to sin. Paul does not mean that we won't ever sin again. We're going to see that in a second in verses 12 through 14. Paul does not mean that you won't ever want to sin again. Paul is saying this, that while sin's presence remains, its power over you has been snapped. It does not reign in your life. It does not rule over you anymore. In other words, Paul is entirely realistic, y'all, about the Christian life. He knows that we're going to struggle. And what that means is, is that this teaching, here it is, it denies the idea of Christian perfectionism. Which means that somehow, some way, that you can reach a state where you're not sinning anymore. Paul utterly denies that. As well as other authors of the New Testament, let me give you one. The Apostle John says it, whoops, Sorry, you guys, I didn't mean to jump ahead here. He says this, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. So saying that there's this idea that you can reach this point in your life where you're not sinning anymore is to actually call God a liar. That's what this text is saying. It's really impressive when you think about it. And therefore, a couple more points of application. He's saying that we are engaged in a posture, not of submission, this idea of like bending the knee and sin being our ruler and our master and our maker, but one of warfare. We fight it. We fight. We go after it and we fight it. Keller, Tim Keller writes it this way. He says, While sin remains in me with a lot of strength, it no longer controls my personality and life. It is still able to lead me to disobey God, but now sinful behavior goes against my deepest self-understanding. Why? Are you ready? Because you're dead to sin. It is not your master anymore. You don't owe it one red cent. So Paul is saying, quit paying it. Does that make sense? And all of us desperately need to know this tonight. Because I think all of us, if you're honest with yourself, you know what it's like to wrestle with some sort of sin struggle in your life. And what Paul is saying, that the real battle begins, that fighting sin and fighting temptation in your life begins in the most unassuming of places. Where? Here it is. In remembering who you are. That you are a new life. That you are a new creation in Christ. That God looks at you and He says, You are my. You are new. You are not bound by sin anymore. So, for example, if you are someone who is given over to worry and to fear about your future, you need to look at that sin, as it were, talk to it this way and say, No way. No, you, you do not have me anymore. The blood of Jesus has been spilled for me such that you owe me nothing. I owe you nothing. And if you have a problem with this, you take it up with the cross. I'm not giving you anything. And so if you struggle, for example, with pornography, and I'm not just talking about the guys here, that you're able to look at the idea of porn and you're able to say, listen up. No moss. No more. I don't owe you anything. And so I will not give you anything. Why? Because I belong to Jesus. Because who I am is dead to you. And who I am is alive to God in Jesus Christ. And so therefore, come at me all you will. You will get nothing of me. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you that enables you to actually be able to fight that. But where does it begin? With some sort of like cool tactics or something? No, it comes back to your identity, who you are. Who you are. It is living out who you are on the inside. That incongruence that we talked about earlier. And so this is so important. You have to ask this question of yourself, y'all. Who am I? And more importantly, who gets to say who I am? Let me break down those two questions. Who are you? 
You are not your old sin. Does that make sense to you? That is not you. Not if you're in Jesus. Who you are, if you are in Jesus and you ask the question, Who am I? You are beloved of the King. You are made new in His sight. You are righteous in His sight. You are alive in Him. You are dead to sin. That is who you are. And the second question is, who gets to define it? Ready? Who are you is one question. The second is, who actually gets to answer that question? And in some ways, the culture doesn't get to answer it. The school that you go to doesn't get to answer it. And here's the real kicker. You don't even get to answer it. You know who gets to answer it for you? Jesus does. He's the one that gets to say, you belong to me. You are mine. I have bled for you. And so you are mine. And when that begins to sink down in your bones, you are given an arsenal of nuclear warheads to be able to fight the devastating sin in your life. Because when sin pops up, do you know what you're able to say? That's not me. I owe it nothing. Because Christ is in me. And I am in Him. That's how this game works, y'all. You see, union with Christ helps us to be able to to fight. To be able to fight sin in our lives. You have to consider yourself, to reckon yourself dead, dead to sin. And it is that reckoning that is so important. A former teacher of mine, uh, Brian Chappell, used to, he tells this story that on October 2011, an older Iowa couple experienced a tragic automobile accident. Norma and Gordon Yeager had been married for 72 years. 72 years, y'all. That's insanity. She was 90. He was 94 when they had their accident. And as they were being treated in the hospital, and this is like total notebook story here, they continued to hold hands on adjoining beds. Several days later, Gordon, the husband, passed away while still clinging on to Norma. His breathing stopped. He became ashen in color. But here's the deal. His heart monitor continued to register a heartbeat. Why? Because the beating on the monitor continued because he was united to Norma. With her hand holding his, it was her heart that registered through him. Her life through him. You see the picture, right? You are dead. The old you is dead. Christ's life, by virtue of your union with Him, now indwells you. You are a new man. You are a new woman. The old has come. The old is gone. The new has come. Do you view yourself that way? Why not if you don't? The Scriptures command you to. Does it make sense? I'll land the plane by saying this. Paul is telling us at this very moment that an even stronger, more real way that God's life is coursing through your very being by the Holy Spirit. He is in you and you are in Him. You've been united to Him and He to you forever, always done. 
Who are you? You are the beloved and indwelled of God. And real freedom and joy is found in living out who you really are. And the power to do this is to see that there was one who identified so much with you in His death that He bore our sin and bore its punishment so that we might get His life, that we might be changed more and more into His likeness. Y'all, the good news of the Gospel is not only that Christ saves you, but that He changes you. You are not the man or woman you used to be. And here's the great hope. You are not yet the man or woman that God is making you to be. Hallelujah. That's great news. Let's pray.